Presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening, welcome to Spooky South Coast. Action packed special edition tonight. We have a lot to do and not so much time to do it, so we're going to get right into it here. This is a special event show here for you. We're coming up on the 60th anniversary of the famed Roswell UFO crash, or maybe non-crash. Well, we'll get into all of that. Uh, it will be uh, coming up on Thursday, right? What? Well, it all depends upon what you mean by the actual day of the crash. Well, let's go. What's the anniversary of the reports is what I'm looking for. Well, the report came out on the 7th. On the 7th. The actual night okay. of the crash was the night of the 2nd into the early morning hours of the 3rd. That's what I'm looking. I just want to know the. the <laughs> we're already getting into it, with uh, the the silent uh, silent running. Okay, here's how it's going to work. Okay, let, let's just explain to everybody here. We have our science advisor, Matt Moniz. He has uh, 25 years' experience investigating the paranormal. Uh, he's been published in works by Linda Moulton Howe, Bud Hopkins, uh, Larry Warren, Larry and Peter Robbins. I mean, uh, referenced in a few things by Omni Magazine, a couple other things here and there. Uh, he, he's he's published in the in the UFO field. He he's got plenty of uh, experience researching uh, some of the most famous cases. So he is going to be on one side of the debate tonight. Matt, tell everybody what your stance is on Roswell, just real brief before we my get into personal details. stance of what I have to what, cover here. What, what what happened? Well, my what, opinion what, was there a UFO crash. Do I have enough to say it was UFO? No. But do I have something to say that it was more than a balloon? Oh, hell yeah. What, what does your gut tell you? That it was something definitely more than a balloon. Okay. And on the other side of things, we have our, our friend from the Mass Monster Mash Conference and the Mass Mystery Tour and, and just all kinds of uh, – everywhere you go, if you turn around and look behind you, John Horgan will be there. Uh, John Horgan is with us tonight. And he also, believe it or not, for for a guy who is – you know, well known for calling sporting events and, and numerous other things that he does. It, he's done tons and tons of research in the UFO field. He's been to Roswell three times, uh, Gulf Breeze, Florida, the plains of uh, San Augusta, the San Luis Valley, Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, all these UFO hotspots. He's been there. He's investigated. Uh, and he's kind of flown under the radar a little bit. So he, he's not one of these guys that's out there writing books about all of this stuff. He's just acquiring it for his own personal edification, his own knowledge, because he has questions about what's going on, just as Matt Moniz does. So what we're going to do is we're going to – now, John, what, what, what's your opinion of what happened at Roswell? The great Roswell balloon crash. It's a murder mystery. Truth was murdered. Fact was maimed. Do you want to go? Well, do you, punk? <laughs> You're going down. All right. Well, this this is going to be exciting because w- the way we're going to set this up is we're going to have 15 championship rounds uh, of verbal boxing back and forth uh, between Matt Moniz and John Horrigan. We're going to give uh, we're going to throw out a subject matter for each round. Uh, we'll play some audio for you. Some of the is, is this John? You said this is the first time that this much audio has been presented 
witness testimony and uh, all right we're going to present all that to you here on, on a history making episode and then what we'll do is we'll give uh, matt and john each one minute to make a point uh, of their point of view of what's being presented and then we'll give them a minute to just slug it out back and forth and uh, at the end of the night all the results will be hopefully tallied if you go to spookysouthcoast.com and you click on the blog, you'll find out more information about what we're talking about, some links to some videos. Uh, you'll see pictures of John and Matt getting ready to, to duke it out. But also, we need you. We need your help tonight because just with, with any other boxing match, you know, you, you need three judges to accurately score the contest. Well, I'm going to be a judge because, hey, I'm here. i got to do something. If these guys are going to be talking all night, i got to keep myself busy. I will be one of the judges. The silent assassin Matt Costa is here. He will be one of the judges as well. Are you, are you ready for the challenge, Matt? I don't see a challenge. Are you licensed by the Massachusetts State UFO uh, Debate Commission? Not yet. The papers are still going through. Okay. Well, you'll, you're going to be a judge. Uh, and then we need a third judge, and that third judge is you out there. So if you log on to SpookySouthCoast.com, go to the blog, you will see little windows where you can vote on each of the rounds. Do us a favor. Don't vote ahead of time. You know, uh, Just make sure that you try to keep it accurate and honest. And the one thing that we're asking you to do tonight, don't vote based on what you think happened. Don't vote for Matt Moniz because you think it wasn't a weather balloon. Don't vote for John Horrigan because you think it was. That's kind of tainting. I want you to listen to what each man has to say, and based on the evidence that they're presenting you and the information that they're presenting you, judge who won that round based on what was presented. And then we'll have an accurate description of who won the verbal battle, and uh, we'll get you tons of information in a fun and entertaining manner. That's the plan. So uh, we'll we'll see where we can go w- with these things uh, as we go along. So, and uh, we we'd like to thank you all for tuning in. But we won't be taking your questions tonight because we have so much to do. Maybe if there's some time at the end, we'll throw the phone lines open. But if you do come up with any questions during the course of this discussion, just go to spookysouthcoast.com. Go onto the message board there. You can post your questions there. You can email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. And if that uh, if you go to massmonstermash.com, massmonstermash.org, ma- massmonstermash.net.tv.au, whatever <laughs> else there is, if you go to the Mass Monster Mash site, you can email John Horrigan there as well with any questions you might have. So, uh, Matt Costa, what do you think? Are we ready? I think it's going to be a brawl for all. All right, well then, round one is going to be about Kenneth Arnold. And uh, Matt, why don't you tell us, who's Kenneth Arnold? Okay, here we go. Kenneth Arnold, a salesman back in 1947, also an amateur pilot, was reported to have seen nine quote-unquote discs skipping across Mount Rainier. Uh, Made the report after he landed, uh, and subsequently later on people started using the term flying saucers because it was attributed to him that he said these were skipping across like saucers would skip across water. Okay. I'll call you out to center ice right off the bat. 
down go to the stick and off go the gloves. Uh, I think we ought to knock his block off. First of all, Kenneth Arnold, uh, you were asking before the show, what's this got to do with Roswell? It has everything to do with Roswell. Kenneth Arnold is the godfather of UFOlogy. June 24th, 1947, you'll hear the audio in a minute, sees these objects. As you mentioned, we both agreed that he did say that he saw something. I argue that he never mentioned saucers skipping across water, and all of the newspapers that I investigated from June 25th forward uh, do not mention saucers. I do have a Dan Wilmot interview uh, later in the Roswell Daily Record, Record, if we have time, where he mentioned saucers. But it has a lot to do with Roswell. If there are such things as flying saucer crashes, you can't have just one. Either they're coming down in droves or there are no flying saucer crashes. Or if they exist in another dimension, as some people uh, purport, then they can't crash. So I think that if there was, which I don't at this point, was a flying saucer crash at Roswell, you have to equate it with the Kenneth Arnold incident because Roswell, you mentioned some dates in the open about being in early July. That's wrong. Precedes Kenneth Arnold, and I'll read that in a moment. Well, why don't we just – we'll get into Kenneth Arnold, what he has to say. And uh, I also have to be a judge and a referee tonight, so it's, 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 I should have shaved my head like Mills Lane. All right, we'll, we'll play the Kenneth Arnold audio. We'll let the listeners hear what he has to say, and then when we come back, you guys can duke it out about what he says. This caster in every newspaper across the nation has made headlines out of it, and this afternoon we are honored indeed to have here in our studio this man, Kenneth Arnold, who we believe may be able to give us a first-hand account and give you the same on what happened. Kenneth, first of all, if you'll move up here to the microphone just a little closer, uh, we'll ask you uh, to just tell in your own fashion, as you told us last night in your hotel room and again this morning, uh, what you were doing there and how this entire thing started. Go ahead, Kenneth. Well, at about... Uh... 2.15, I took off from Chehalis, Washington, en route to Yakima, and of course, every time that any of us fly over the country near Mount Rainier, we spend an hour or two in search of the marine plane that's never been found that they believe is in the snow someplace southwest of that particular area. That area is located at about, or <coughs> its elevation is about 10,000 foot, and I had made one sweep in close to Mount Rainier and down one of the canyons and was dragging it for any types of object that might prove to be the marine ship. Uh, and as I come out uh, of the canyon there, it was about 15 minutes. I was approximately 25 to 28 miles from Mount Rainier. I climbed back up to 9,200 feet, and I noticed to the left of me a chain which looked to me like the tail of a Chinese kite, uh, kind of weaving and going at a terrific speed across the face of Mount Rainier. I uh, at first uh, thought they were geese because it flew like geese, but it was going so fast that that uh, I immediately changed my mind and decided it was a bunch of new jet planes in formation. Well, as the, as the planes come to the edge of Mount Rainier, flying at about 160 degrees south, uh, I uh, thought I would clock them because it was such a clear day, and uh, I didn't know where their destination was, but uh, due to the fact that I had Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams to clock them by, I just thought I'd see just how fast they were going, since among pilots we argue about speed so much. And... Uh, uh, they seemed to flip and flash in the sun just like a mirror. And, uh, in fact, I happened to be at an angle from the sun that seemed to hit the tops of these uh, peculiar-looking things in such a way that it, it almost blinded you when you when you looked at, at them through your plexiglass windshield. Well, uh, I uh, it was about one minute to three when uh, I, st- I started clocking them on my, uh, my sweet second-hand clock. And uh, as I kept looking at them, I kept looking for their tails. They didn't have any tails. 
I thought, well, maybe I'm, something's wrong with my eyes. And I turned the, the plane around and opened the window and looked out the window, and sure enough, I couldn't find any tails on them. And uh, the whole observation of these particular ships didn't last more than about two and a half minutes. And I could see them only plainly when uh, they seemed to tip their wing or whatever it was, and the sun flashed on them. They looked something like uh, a pie plate that was cut in half with a sort of a convex triangle in the rear. Now, I thought, well, uh, that maybe they're jet planes with just the, pa- the tails painted green or brown or something, and didn't think too, too much of it, but kept on watching them. Well, they didn't fly in the conventional formation that's taught in our army. They, uh, they seemed to kind of weave in and out right above the mountaintop. And uh, I would say that they even went down into the canyons in several instances, oh, probably 100 feet. But I could see them against uh, the snow, of course, on Mount Rainier, and against the snow on Mount Adams as they were flashing, and uh, against a high ridge that happened to lay in between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams. But uh, when I observed the tail end of the last one passing Mount Adams, and I was at an angle uh, near Mount Rainier from it, but uh, I looked at my watch, and it showed one minute and 42 seconds. Well, uh, I still thought, well, that's pretty fast, and I didn't stop to think what the distance was between the two mountains. Well, I landed at Yakima, Washington, and uh, Al Baxter was there to greet me, and he saw up here, and uh, <laughs> he told me, I guess I better change my brand. <laughs> Uh, but he, he kind of gave me a mysterious sort of a look that maybe I had seen something. He didn't know. And, well, I just kind of forgot it then until I got down at Pendleton, and I, I began looking at my map and taking measurements on it. And the best calculation I could figure out, now even in spite of error, would be around 1,200 miles an hour, because making the distance from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams in, we'll say, approximately two minutes, it's almost, uh, well, it would be around 25 miles per minute. Now, allowing for air, we can give them three minutes or four minutes to make it, and uh, they're still going more than, than 800 miles an hour, and to my knowledge, there isn't anything that I read about outside of some of the German rockets that would go that fast. These were flying in more or less a level, uh, constant altitude. They weren't going up and they weren't going down. They were just simply flying straight and level, and I, uh, <laughs> I laughed and I told the pilots at town, I said, they sure must have had a tailwind, <laughs> but it didn't seem to help me much. But to the best of my knowledge and the best of my description, uh, that is what I actually saw. And uh, like I told the Associated Press, I'll, uh, I'd be glad to confirm it with my hands on a Bible because I did see it. And whether it has anything to do with our army or our intelligence or whether it has to do with some foreign country, I don't know. But I did see it and I did clock it and I just happened to be in a beautiful position to do it. And uh, it's just as much a mystery to me as it is to everyone else who's been calling me the last 24 hours wondering what it was. Well, Kenneth, thank you very much. I know that uh, you've certainly been busy these last 24 hours because I've spent some of the time with you myself. And I know that the press associations, both Associated Press and our press, the United Press, has been uh, right after you every minute. Uh, the Associated and United Press all over the nation has been after this story. It's been on every newscast over the air and in every newspaper I know of. The uh, uh, United Press in Portland has made ter- several telephone calls. All right, so there you go. That is the eyewitness testimony of Kenneth Arnold, and that was 24 hours after the sighting, uh, and that was, uh, you know, fascinating stuff. I mean, when you when you get to hear this stuff, and it, it's this old, and it survived this long, it survived this long for a reason. Uh, so now we're going to debate the finer points of, of of what exactly he had to say, and uh, we we're going to flip a coin here to decide which gentleman gets to begin the debate first. John, I'll call because I'm the guest. Uh, yes, you are the guest. Call it on the air, John. Heads. 
It's tails. So Matt Moniz will go first. Now, before we get going. To be courteous, I'll actually let John go first. Oh, you've deferred the kickoff, have you? I prefer moving they, targets. They, they well, elected. Well, now, wait a minute. Now, shake hands. I want a good, clean fight. Books. No, uh, no talking below the belt. <laughs> okay. John, you have one minute. Well, first of all, Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Arnold did not invent the term flying saucers. He invented the term fa- flying pie plates, as you heard. He doesn't mention saucers. He doesn't mention nine objects which, which show up in popular UFO lore. Um, he's talking about shiny metallic objects, and his description, we both agree, is similar to the, the description that some witnesses, whether they're true or false, describe the Roswell objects are. So, and I'll prove it in a moment that this incident follows the Roswell incident, the original incident. He's looking for a downed aircraft that uh, had allegedly carried some sort of slag from Maury Island. I'm going to run out of time. I, I would like you to talk about it. But basically, slag fell out of an airplane or fell out of the sky and killed a dog and injured some people in a boat. But uh, this is the incident that follows the Scandinavian ghost rocket scare of 1946. Okay, and it, it also uh, follows the Foo Fighters. Matt Moniz, your counterpoint. All right, the Maury Island incident did happen in a week prior to Kenneth Arnold's event. Uh, that was an unknown object that rained debris down upon a guy his dog in a boat right outside the Maury Islands. Material recovered and flown back in a uh, Marauder, B- B-26 Marauder, if I'm not mistaken. Crashed uh, on the side of Mount Rainier and was never recovered as far as I know to this day. I agree that the, uh, um, the his description of pie plate was is accurate. But his descriptions of the nine vehicles and it being like a saucer skipping across water is in the Fate Magazine interview of the very first Fate magazine. That's what caused Fate magazine to be started with. And that is a direct quote from him, and those are direct, are what is quoted by him. And now the the fun part of the, uh, of the battle. You now have one minute to basically just go back and forth, and it's a free-for-all, a flurry of punches beginning... No. I looked into newspapers, Matty, in 1947. That's I newspapers. couldn't find any Try information. Radio, so, you know, no, original information. information, not stuff that comes to life in the 1990s in the form of tabloid books or tabloid on the books, freaking it's internet. An actual, you don't actual have time book. for research. Whatever it says on the internet's fine by me. I'll bust this guy's teeth out. Time out. I have to what see do what Paris is doing. What's she doing magazine on the internet? has been around long before Understood. most of the newspapers But I want to read at. to you where the term flying saucer comes from. It comes from the Roswell Daily Record, July 8, 1947. Yeah, Dan Wilmot, who's sitting on his front porch, sees an object go through the sky. And he says, in appearance, it looks oval in shape like two inverted saucers faced mouth to mouth or like two old type wash bowls placed together in the same fashion. So I argue that the term flying saucer did not come from Arnold, but it came from the Roswell David But it's also quoted by Arnold as being the one that coined is saying that it skipped across. He didn't say it in the interview, though. He didn't say it in that interview, but who's to say he didn't say it in written interviews by other authors? It was blown out. It's more mythos from Kenneth Arnold, the godfather of UFOlogy. Way too much information all going at one time. It is. It's, it's fast and furious, but that's the idea. We're trying to get as much of this information out there to the listeners so that they can 
this is, is all information that all these listeners can look up for themselves. Absolutely, and and we highly recommend that you do so. Don't just take our word for it. Uh, so that is the first round on Kenneth Arnold. Now let's move on to the second round uh, of Mac Brazel. Uh, John, we'll let you tell us about Mac Brazel. Mac Brazel is a rancher who leased some land from the Bureau of Land Management out in Corona, New Mexico, on the Foster Ranch. And um, he's a hayseed. He's not going to be in Mensa. He's not doesn't have a PhD. This guy. He's a freaking rancher. Fits in on this show then. That's right. And right. And maybe some of the people. No, I'm not going to go there. But anyway, so he finds this debris, um, and you'll see he tucks it under bushes. He waits a few days before he goes to his neighbors, and then finally his neighbors say there's a $3,000 bounty for flying saucer debris. He says, flying what? And he goes into town, and he's looking for three k. He's a little irate because his sheep can't cross this huge debris field, this gouge in the earth with these odd pieces that are lying about. I'll argue if there's a gouge or not. And so he says, who's going to clean it up? He goes in to see the sheriff. Sheriff refers him to the military, and I guess we can pick it up from there. Okay. This is the son of, of Mac Brazel, Bill Brazel, talking. According to my dad, there was a bad thunderstorm the night before, and the next day he was out on the ranch, and he found this debris. And he picked it all up in his pickup, and was talking to people, and, of course, there was some talk about UFOs. He was going to Roswell, and as far as I know, he got in touch with the sheriff's department. They, in turn, called the Air Force. Then the Air Force got with Dad and uh, swore him to secrecy, and they came out to the ranch and picked up this debris. Wood, I call it wood. I don't know what it was. It was something like balsa wood, but uh, it wouldn't burn. And I couldn't cut it with my knife. He said that's what the Air Force tried to make him believe, that it was a weather balloon. He said, Bill, he said it was not a weather balloon. He said, I don't know what it was. But he said it was something altogether different and much bigger. And I was talking about it. I went into Corona and I was sitting there in a beer joint and I up to these. Of course, my friends is asking me if I'd found any more or anything like this. And I said, well, I picked up a few scraps, uh, about a cigar box full. And uh, somebody, I don't know, must have informed the Air Force because first thing I know, I have visitors. And they say they'd like to have this material. And they didn't tell me they'd confiscate it. They just said, well, like we're going to have it one way or the other, you know. Okay, so the Mac Brazel reports, uh, is, well, was reported by his son, Bill Brazel. But, uh, so John Horgan had the, the first minute in the first round. So Matt Moniz, it's all yours beginning now. I like how he says, like balsa wood, but not balsa wood. He's making a clear and definite statement that this is something that he cannot recognize. Even a hayseed son can tell the difference between wood and something that's not wood and something that's unfamiliar. Uh, it's also interesting to note that, that the report of him going to the sheriff's department and then following afterwards his interview with other Air Force material... 30 seconds asking to have 
the material returned to them or they're going to acquire it one way or another seems rather ominous for something that's just a balloon, especially if it's something that common that can be easily identified. Now, uh, to say that, you know, this kid is, Ten seconds. You, know, l- you know, knows everything about aircraft engineering, highly unlikely, but I'm sure he can tell the difference between common items and uncommon items. All right, Mr. Horrigan, the floor is all yours beginning now. Okay, I'm going to quote the Roswell Daily Record of, um, of July 9, 1947. Brazel related that on June 14th, he and eight-year-old son Vernon were about seven or eight miles from the ranch house on the J.B. Foster Ranch, which he operates, when they came upon a large area of bright wreckage made up of rubber strips, tin foil, and a rather tough paper and sticks. At the time, Brazel was in a hurry to get his round made, and he did not pay much attention to it. But he did remark about what he had seen, and on July 4th, he, and I want readers note 16, that's 20 days later, his Very wife sad. Vernon and a daughter Betty, age 14, went back to the spot and gathered up quite a bit of the debris. This is what his daughter Bessie, not Betty, said. The debris looked like pieces of a large balloon which had burst. The pieces were small, the largest I remember measuring about the same as the diameter of a basketball. Most of it was kind of double-sided material, foil-like on one side and rubber-like on the other. Sticks, like kite sticks, were attached to some of the pieces with a whitish tape. The tape was about two or three inches wide and had flower-like designs on it. The flowers were faint, a variety of pastel colors. The foil rubber material could not be torn like ordinary aluminum. All right, gentlemen. You now have one minute to go back and forth, beginning now. Can I just talk about what Bessie finished this? I do not recall anything else about the strength or other properties of what we picked up. We spent several hours collecting the debris and putting it into sacks. I believe we filled about three sacks. We speculated a bit about what the material could be. I remember Dad, Max, saying, oh, it's just a bunch of garbage. And that's what the whole story of Roswell is, just a bunch of garbage. Really, a bunch of garbage. And if they picked up all of the material, why did it take five trucks full to be loaded back to Roswell with a balloon that is only of 200 You're ahead of the story. We're back on June 14th, not July 4th, as every popular lore would say. We're June 14th, 1947. And again, he doesn't know what foil, cellophane, scotch tape, or plastic is, and that's what this balloon is comprised of. Pastel colors with pretty little symbols on it. Exactly. That's my point. He's scratching his head there. What's this? So then what's the the stuff that's there on the 4th that they're You're way ahead of it. We're not there. We're on June 14th, brother. We're not in July yet. I'm saying we're June 14th. He's out there with his son. I don't even see Son Bill there. That kid's got an interview there. The guy, many years later, he's not even mentioned in this article. I like this. I like when I have to say stop. You guys have to stop. We're going to do the show like this every week, guys, just so you know. When I say stop talking, stop talking. Usually it's the other way around, a little behind-the-scenes info. Usually it's when Matt Costa tells us to start and stop talking. So tonight I get to play a producer role, I guess. All right, well, that is round two. Score it on your scorecards at home. Just go to the blog at SpookySouthCoast.com. Vote as you need to. Uh, vote either for Science Advisor Matt Moniz, who started the round, John Horgan, who responded, or a draw, if you think that it's a draw. And uh, now we will move on to round three. Um, this this uh, section we call The Neighbors. Basically, mm-hmm. Frank Joyce from KGFL. Brazel comes into town, and Joyce hears about it from the sheriff. He happens to be over at the sheriff's office and says, uh, why don't you go tell the military about it? And that sends a cascade, cascading of events. And also you'll hear after Frank Joyce, you'll hear the next clip from neighbor Loretta Proctor. And she, who never handled the debris, let alone Sard, her husband did, is the one that puts the bug in his ear saying, you might pick up three grand um, for a reward for that. Okay, so let's fire that off, Matt. So I got a call from a man who uh, 
on the ranch. Now, once again, we're going to get into something here. Uh, I don't try to go into details about what he said to me or what I believe he said. But he was reporting some uh, uh, wreckage, let's call it wreckage, on his ranch. And he asked me, and he was quite a, well, I, I guess I could say upset. He asked me what to do about it. And I recommended that he talk to all these. After listening to some of the things he was saying, he's saying uh, certain things which I really would ordinarily be very skeptical about. You know, when you work at a radio station, TV station, you get all sorts of calls from uh, people, and uh, some of them uh, may be a little strange. <clears throat> so I recommended, just generally speaking here, without trying to go into a lot of details, that he go to certain authorities. And I finally got him around to, I suggested that with whatever he was talking to me about, <clears throat> that he contact the Roswell Army Air Force Base. As I said, they're flyers, they'll know what to do about anything that flies. The PC brought up with like kind of a tan, light brown plastic is what it looked like. No plastic now, but it didn't have any plastic <laughs> that I knew of. And, uh, then it, uh, there was something he described as uh, tape. He said kind of like a piece of tape that had printing on it. wasn't wasn't uh, writing as we knew it. it. It wasn't Japanese writing. It was suggested maybe that it might have been a Japanese book or something. He said the writing wasn't like Japanese writing. But it was, I imagine, more like hieroglyphics or something like that, the way he described it. Okay, so that is the neighbor testimony uh, that you heard uh, from, from two of the neighbors in the area. Uh, John, you are going to get to begin this round. Go. Um, Frank Joyce, basically, at KGFL, telling about uh, steering Brazel the other way. Loretta Proctor, again, she did not handle the debris. She never saw the debris. She talks about it and as if she's an authority, but her husband handled the debris. And again, she's mentioning tape with hieroglyphics. She says it's not Japanese, and she's referring to Japanese balloon bombs, which were launched, I believe, 9,000 of them were sent over um, the Pacific Ocean towards America in late 1944 through the end of the war, World War II. Um, but she's describing tape, and tape was used the raw wind target um, balloons in Project Mogul. It was balloon debris, and that's what she's describing. Again, Mac is describing balloon debris. He's gone over to his neighbor's house now, and this is a few days later. It's July 4th. He's over at the Proctor's, by the way, because he goes into town on the 5th, and there she puts the bug in his ear saying there's a flying saucer scare because flying saucers have Ten been all seconds. over the news since uh, Kenneth Arnold's report that came to light on June 25th. So the hysteria is there, and it's aboard America in July of late June and early July 1946. Gentlemen, one rule that we do want to get out there so you know, uh, you, you do not have to use your entire minute if you if you so choose. Just let us know that you're finished. And uh, you also can pass as well if you don't want to uh, partake in that particular subject. Feel free to pass as well. So, All right, and it's now your turn, Matt Moniz. Now, later on, if I'm not mistaken, he reported back to this reporter after he was held in on the base for uh, I believe it was three to four days, that he he then recanted his story 
to cover his butt because he was essentially also told them that he was ordered to. That now you can't thirty can't, seconds. You can't say that you know you're going to tell a reporter one thing and then you have to go back and tell him something else because you've been ordered to. A civilian. Number two, the the neighbor. She's describing hieroglyphics. Now hieroglyphics and pictures of flowers look very much different than each other. Uh, now, granted, like you said, she's only catching it secondhand, but I'm pretty sure her husband can tell what flowers look like. As I'm sure, as most guys and husbands, they've made mistakes and had to bring their wise flowers. So I'm uh, sure he knows uh, how flowers look. Good point by you, though, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, I'm supposed to remain impartial to the match is over, but, you know, uh, plenty of times I can remember having to bring them home. So, all right, gentlemen, now, now you can duke it out for one minute beginning now. Well, I, I agree with you that, that there, we'll go over it later in the fight. Uh, one of the rounds is dedicated to Brazil and lockdown, so I don't want to discuss it there. But again, Loretta Proctor, she's described, she says tape. Okay, she wouldn't say tape if it wasn't tape. And again, this is the advent well, of cellophane. Well, you're arguing that she's never tape, even saw it, so how does she know what tape the advent is? Of cellophane. If she isn't and there. to these hayseeds how out in the Mexican that, desert, you know, this is know, totally unique to them. You, can't you, have tape you know what you got there, if you, Matt? If you don't you know, know what you got there, you got some of that flying sausage debris, and I heard you can get up to $3,000. You return that into town. Yeah, well, wait a minute. Didn't your daughter already collect it and store it in a bag underneath the bush? Yeah. You know? Right. He's totally. No three bags, and then right. he was three bags full, just like your story about the, the, uh, the balloon. It's and I'm going to tell you what he said to the sheriff. You know he whispers, he whispered you know? kind of confidential-like is what he was said oh, into the sheriff. And the sheriff said perhaps, um, you know, right. Frank Joyce was there, said perhaps you should go to the military. Well, but, and I guess that's what he did, didn't he? Time. See how he does that? <laughs> Are you reading the clock over my shoulder? Pay, paying attention to the timing. That's, that's amazing that you can count in your head. like That's why I have a stopwatch. I can't count time. All right, well, that is round three, the neighbor's testimony. Now we're going to move on to round four, which is the testimony of the sheriff's daughters. Uh, so we have some audio on that as well. Uh, just tell us, John, a little bit about who the, the sheriff's daughters are. You're going to hear three tracks. The first track is Elizabeth Wilcox, daughter of the sheriff, of Roswell Sheriff Wilcox, George Wilcox, um, then Phyllis Wilcox, and then you're going to hear the granddaughter, um, who I think is full of it, uh, Barbara, um, who is the granddaughter of Sheriff Wilcox. So you're going to hear three tracks in a row. When we arrived, why, uh, I noticed that there were jeeps and some people, you know, from the Air Force there. And, uh, of course, I went right in with my small child, and my husband, Jay, went into the office, and he said to my father, what's going on, George? And he said, well, we've had a man come in, uh, saying that there is a flying saucer and bringing a piece of things and said, uh, I don't know what it is, and said, we're investigating it. And uh, he said, uh, what was it? And he said, well, uh, it looked like a burnt grass, like burnt grass out there. But as the years went along, Mother would always say, and I also know of an article that she wrote that said, uh, we do not as to this day know that there, whether it was a flying saucer or what, because they told her, my husband, Mr. Wilcox, that she would say, don't you say a word. So he didn't, and he was very calm about it. I mean, he just didn't say anything. Who told him not to say the word? Uh, the Air Force did. When they came and picked up the piece or whatever they did, she said they uh, recommended him. That's what the words were in the article she wrote. 
So you wrote about this flying saucer incident in the, in the, in the newspaper, and you went and asking about it. And um, what did he tell you? And um, I asked him, uh, "Do you think this is true?" And uh, he said, "I don't know why Brazel would have come all the way in here and brought that stuff if it hadn't been something important, and that he didn't, that he it had to be something that he." thought was that. And he had sent deputies out to see about it. What happened? Did he send, and he sent the, the deputies And he out? sent the deputies out. And <clears throat> I think I'm of the opinion that he sent the deputies out once and that they um, saw a large uh, black area, blackened area, the grass, the range land, and that they came back because it was dark. And then when he, when they came back, he had to wait till the next day to send them back again to find something else. And when they went back again, uh, the army had blocked it off and would, didn't let them in. One evening we were watching TV and it was uh, on TV there was something about space and my grandmother looked over at me and she said, Barbara, do you believe in anything, you know, outside of the earth? And I said, you know I do. And she said, well, I have something that I would really like to tell you, but I don't want you to ever discuss this or tell anyone because I've never told anybody. And I said, fine, what do, we, what do you need to tell me? And, she, you know, I, I thought it was going to be something completely different than what she told me. And she said, uh, in the 40s, there was a spacecraft, a flying saucer is what Big Mom called it, uh, crashed outside of Roswell. And I said, that's interesting. I said, how do you know about it, Big Mom? And she said, your grandfather, George, was as a sheriff at the time. And I said, well, I don't have any idea. I said, what more about it? And it, she was very hesitant to talk about it, but you knew that within her there was something that she really needed to tell me. She sat there for quite a while, and then she looked at me, and she said, I'm just going to tell you. And she said, but don't tell anybody. And I said, who would I tell anyway? I don't know anybody to tell. And she said, the reason that I'm telling you this is because when the incident happened, the military police came to the courthouse, to the jailhouse, and told George and I that if we ever told anything about this incident, talked about it in any way, that not only we would be killed, but the family, that they would cut, they would get the rest of the family. She was there and witnessed the police, yes. the military she coming. Was, yes, when she she was standing there with my grandfather, I said, "Did you hear them say that, Big Mom?" That's what I called mm -hmm. her, and she said, "Yes, I did, Barbara." What happened is someone came and told my grandfather of this incident that had happened outside of Roswell. My grandmother stated that my grandfather went out there to the site. When he got out there, there was a big burned area when they first approached the area. And then they saw debris. He saw debris. I don't know if he was alone. She was not with him. He went by himself. She said that it was kind of like in the evening. And then he, when he came back, he, uh, she, I asked her, I said, you know, out of jokingness, did he see any little faith beings? And she said, yes, there was four of them. And I asked her, I said, what did they have on Big Mom? And she said that they had on a 
they were like gray. And Granddaddy said their heads were large. And the little suit that they had on was just, you, you couldn't, it was just like um, silk or something, like that kind of material. But it, they were gray. And I asked her what happened after that. And she said he came back into town. And they, I guess they had discussed this incident. And they had thought it was fine to put it over the news, to talk about it. And then apparently something happened and it was not okay. And when they knew that he had gone out there and seen the site and seen this situation that they had talked about, Big Mom said that they were on him like he wouldn't believe. And they came into the jailhouse and told him, you don't say anything, George. And if you do, you will die and so will Inez and the children and those children. And I said, did you believe him? She said, what do you think? Those are definitely some some uh, heavy threats being levied there at the end. Uh, Matt Moniz, your thoughts and impressions on, on the testimony of the sheriff's family. Beginning. Now, when it comes to the granddaughters, starting backwards, the granddaughters talking about the military or the government coming and threatening the people, you know, being somebody that's actually had that happen to them firsthand, I know how she feels or her grandparents felt. They do do stuff like that, and I, uh, you know, I have plenty of witnesses of what's happened to me to prove that kind of stuff does happen. Now, as far as you know, here, as far as her uh, grandfather going out and stating, you know, that he's seen it, he had made, I believe, a couple of references to that to other researchers. N- only a few of them made mild publishings of it, but nothing too uh, detailed, if I'm not mistaken. Ten seconds. That's all I got. Okay. And now, John Horgan, your response, beginning. Okay. Start from the top. Elizabeth Wilcox, of the three, I find credible. She says she's strolling her baby. She heads into town. Dad, what's going on? Dad says there's military people. That this guy came in, and he thinks that he might have found uh, something strange. It uh, might have been a flying saucer. She describes a burn spot. Okay? She was there. There's where the burn spot comes. Second witness, Phyllis. Um, she describes a burn spot, probably heard it from her older sister. It is of my opinion that he sent out deputies. It is of my opinion that she sent out deputies the next morning, okay, and uh, that it was not of this world. And then you have the drama queen, the, the uh, granddaughter, who says they had cute little gray little suits, four space beings. She's back-engineered herself into the story. It's total farce. And she says that we'll kill you, your sons, your daughters, your dog, your family, your granddaughters. We'll kill the descendants for 300 years Stop it. Give me a break. That's that's nonsense. She's back engineered herself taking popular lore. All right. Well, <laughs> he seems to uh, uh, challenge some of these threats uh, that might have been levied, and, and Matt, having had it personally happen to him, might uh, take that a little bit uh, sensitively. You know, and it's, I just want to throw out here, too, to people that are listening, you really see in their responses to what's being presented the the – Differences in just the personalities of John and Matt. Now, keep in mind, these, these guys are great friends off the air. Uh, they, they have a lot of respect for each other as colleagues and research, fellow researchers. But they have definitely two different uh, personalities. Matt, very laid back, very relaxed. John, very ball of energy. So uh, that's definitely going to come through in their arguments tonight. And uh, speaking of arguments, you now have one minute to go back and forth, beginning now. 
Hey, I'm armed. How would you like to see what a bullet like is like when it goes whizzing so, by you? Well, I think that Sheriff Wilcox and military got to them, but they probably requested Sheriff. Oh, please, now you're back, Pedley. Oh, no, no, I'm not. They no, wouldn't threaten please. them. They requested Sheriff. We'd really want because the hysteria I'm here. There's so much hysteria. It's really talk a about this. How is and that now not? All this you know, UFO nonsense has been leaked. We need your help. It starts with you, Sheriff. Oh, you're the oh, Sheriff. Oh, now it's Roswell. the help. Of, Chill down. All right. Stop talking about this stuff. We need you to put a cap on it. Or we're going to put a cap in you. Oh, yeah. You will kill your daughter. Will kill your. I mean, come on. Do you know if there's anybody in the military at that point, 1947, they would have taken that person out and shot them. No, that was part of the course, especially when it came to military secrets back then. Because that was the only way they could control information. What happened was this woman heard some Roswell tales and put herself into the story just so she could be somebody. She's part of the family. How does that not make her part of the story? Another Roswell Pinocchio, another liar. Her nose is probably growing as she speaks here. The military never did. They probably requested Jerry. Are you trying to say that the military? Never Time. does that to people. Time. Oh, there you go. Uh, have fun. Uh, have fun voting on that round, folks. Just go to the blog at spookysouthcoast.com and and you can vote there. And keep in mind, folks, uh, that that you know, you can vote. Keep voting during the course of the show. Uh, you know, if you missed a round, or if you want to go back and and. and uh, Vote because you, you you don't have to do it live. I mean, take your time. Make sure you get your votes in there because every vote counts. So that takes care of round number four. Now we're going to move on to round number five, and we're going to be talking about Jesse Marcel Sr. and and also some words from Jesse Marcel Jr. Matt Money, share with us who the Marcells are. Jesse Marcel Sr. He was part of the Roswell Air Force Base. He was part of Air Intelligence. Air Intelligence was responsible for collecting all information and. Regards of um, any aircraft and anything that was going on around the base, uh, intelligence was the big thing in a nuclear armed air wing. It was the only nuclear armed air wing in the world at five hundred nine. Yeah, it was also the nuclear bomb group that bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And interestingly, today the five hundred ninth is also the stealth bomb group that we have today and continues on. In, in that tradition, and supposedly the stealth bomber is derived of uh, some of the fruits of the crash of Roswell, is supposedly. Reverse how, engineering? Yeah, supposedly, but yeah. All right, well, let's hear what the Marcells have to say. From one piece of metal, what looked like metal anyway, it was not flexible, but it was as, as thin as a fall of a pack of cigarettes. It was that thin. My boss told me. So there's something unusual here. He said, I tried to make a dip in this metal. He says, you can't bend it. You can't make a mark on it. He says, I took a sledgehammer and, and whammed it. I put it on the ground and whammed it. And the, sledge, the sledgehammer bounced off of it. One thing I was certain of, being familiar with all our activities, that it was not a weather balloon nor an aircraft, nor a missile. It was something else of which we didn't know what it was. There were just fragments strewn all over the area, an area about three-quarters of a mile long and several hundred feet wide. So we proceeded to pick up the parts. A lot of it had a lot of little members with symbols that, to me, I call them hieroglyphics because I could not interpret them. It could not be read. They were just like symbols of something that meant something. These little members could not be broken. 
could not be burned. I, I even tried to burn that. It would not burn. See, that stuff weighs nothing. It's not any thicker than tinfoil in a pack of cigarettes. Says I tried to bend the stuff. Says it will not bend. Says we did all we could to bend it. It would not bend. Says we even tried making a dent in it with a 16-pound sledgehammer. He says still no dent in it. It was definitely not a weather balloon. And uh, it was an aircraft. So what it could have been, I wouldn't know. I still don't know. All right, and that was Jesse Marcel Sr. Now we're going to hear from his son, Jesse Marcel Jr. He had something he wanted to show us. This uh, apparently was some debris or something he brought in from the field uh, at that time. And I understand he was on his way to the air base to deliver this, but he felt that this was unusual enough that he wanted us to see it first before he delivered it to its proper destination. And what happened uh, What happened after he woke you up? And... Well, he was, uh, as I recall, very excited. And uh, again, he said, I want to show you something. And uh, uh, so I got my, my house coat on, as did my mother. And uh, he had gone out to the car and brought back in some metallic debris. I believe it was in a box. I know uh, I don't recall whether I walked outside with him or not, but uh, he made it seem like the, the 1942 Buick we had was loaded with the stuff uh, in the back seat and in the trunk area. At any rate, uh, he brought the material in and spread it on the kitchen floor and uh, in an effort to try to piece it together like a jigsaw puzzle to get some idea of the form of this, but unfortunately it was too much of it too finely divided to do that. There was a lot of rather thick foil-like material, uh, kind of a, not a uh, shiny aluminum, but uh, burnished or a uh, slate gray type of aluminum metal. Uh, there was a black plastic type debris, like bakelite, which was shattered. It was very brittle material. And then there were uh, fragments of what appeared to be I-beams. Relatively small, but a uh, typical I-beam type configuration. The most unusual part of this whole thing was what was on the I-beam, on the inner surface of the I-beam. Because uh, as you look at it head-on, there appeared to be a type of writing in the, on the mainframe itself. Uh, this writing was uh, definitely a purplish violet hue. It did have uh, an embossed appearance because you could, if I recall, you could rub your finger along it and you could tell it, it had texture. Uh, I don't recall any seeing any lines or letters of any kind, but it was more like geometric shapes. Right, Jesse Marcel, one of the more mercurial figures uh, in the Roswell debate. And uh, interestingly enough, we're, we're going to start this one off with John Horgan, who I think is chomping at the bit to uh, talk a little bit about Jesse Marcel. And you can do so beginning now. Jesse Marcel went out to the desert with a man named Sheridan Cavett, another CIC man who has distanced himself from this case and Jesse Marcel um, ever since it came to light. Jesse Marcel is a known liar. He's, I've got three pages of lies here. I'm going to read a few. Marcel claimed that he was an aide to General Hap Arnold. Uh, reality, Marcel applied for an appointment as a second lieutenant when he was 
was still working for Shell Oil. His first assignment in the military was as a student at the Army Air Forces. He's claimed that he's been awarded five air medals. He's only been awarded two air medals. He claimed that he had been a pilot since 1928 and had over 3,000 hours of piloting time. Reality, his reserve officer career brief dated November 20th, 1947, lists his flying experience as none. Um, he says that he shot down five enemy airplanes. There's absolutely no evidence in his personnel file, almost 200 pages, which supports him shooting down even one enemy airplane. More lies. He said that uh, he wrote the very, very report that Tr- President Truman read on the radio. Truman never read any report on the radio about this. Another claim. He claimed in the movie UFO. Matt Moniz, it is now your chance to respond to the claims that Jesse Marcel is a liar. Beginning. Okay. Now he's has two medals instead of five. It's still more than one. He, he's an honored, honored veteran. Can't deny that of the man. Number two, he definitely did recover the material, and the material was piled into his car. Now, how can you have a, a balloon which would easily fit just into the trunk of the car, not only fill the trunk, the back seat, and five other Army vehicles? Uh, 30 seconds. Now, as far as his military career, I think that uh, further review may show that some of the stuff is still valid, though I cannot confirm that because I cannot get access to the media that I needed in order to prepare for this. But I believe his his military record is available in that some of your data is incorrect. Some of it is correct, but a lot of it is incorrect. We'll call it there, and then we'll deduct one point for a shot below the belt. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> I was just waiting to say that. Uh, I want to feel like a real referee. All right, guys, one minute to slug it out, starting now. So he stops home. He empties the debris on the table. He wakes up Bill Jr., and then he get the sledgehammer out. How do you go get the sledgehammer? We're going to whack this on And how can material. you not dent a tinfoil with a sledgehammer? Answer right. me that one, yes. Batman. And again, there you go, the hieroglyphics. is children's tape, okay? This it's is used with a Rowan tape, target. Children's tape, but I'm pretty sure children shapes. can tell the difference between right. hieroglyphics so, and so flowers, John. Triangles and diamonds oh, not to mention Cabot, who did actually shape. wind up saying that Brazil and Marcel were right. And this is confirmed in the 1994 report done by Colonel Wendell. This is not a weather balloon aircraft or missile because it was a highly sensitive listening device. Highly sensitive. Listening to atomic explosions. That's why he doesn't mention that right. specifically because it was a classified uh, secret. Seconds. And he was being a good soldier. It's a classified balloon that you can't dent with a sledgehammer. Okay, right, because it was tin foil. Again, this is new. Uh, last I checked, you can dent tin foil with a sledgehammer. I'm pretty sure it also burns uh, too. All right, folks. Well, why don't you hop on to SpookySouthCoast.com, go to the blog there, cast your votes. We're going to take a one-minute break, and then we'll be back. We'll try to squeeze in another round before the 12 o'clock news, and then we'll be back for the second half of the Roswell Smackdown here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. He hit me one time, and that was just to wake me up because I was bored in the end. Or third round, that's right. That's probably back in that ring. Otherwise, it was just like fighting my little sister. The South Coast is back. Okay, we are back, and uh, before we get into the next round, I'm going to read for you a press release 
that was issued back in 1947. Uh, no copy of the original press release exists today, but the following is generally thought to be the closest to the original. And I quote, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken, and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. And that is quoted from the San Francisco Chronicle, July 9th, 1947. Can we talk about this? Because this is sure, so sure. much confusion, Tim. Good read. Thank you. This is what they believe, is uh, Matt, is the original... Uh, what, Halt's release? Yes, they believe Halt. this is the original Walter Hout. He wrote a couple, and if you look at some of the interviews with Walter Hout, sometimes they'll say that Colonel Butch Blanch, uh, Blanchard, his CO at Roswell, dictated it verbatim to him. Other times, he'll say he opened the door and said, get a press release out. I think we found a flying saucer and closed the door and went back to his office. And Walter, being a good press information officer, who I've spoken to personally, as have I, you know, just went out and perhaps elaborated. I'm not saying synthesized, elaborated on that. But what's confusing about this, and you can tell there's confusion, they were fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers. It said the flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell, not crashed, and not having phone facilities, the, the, the rancher stored the disc until he had the time to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Jesse A. Marcel. Action was taken immediately, and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. Now, again, he lives in Roswell, but he's the, uh, the, at the Foster Ranch in Corona is where this debris was found. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by, Major, loaned by Marcel to higher headquarters, and I think they mean Fort Worth, Tex, uh, Texas, Carswell uh, Airfield, where it goes down to General Roger Ramey. Correct, and then from there to Ray Patterson. But I think this press release is important. It, there's a lot of contradictory evidence right off the bat here. Landed, disc intact. We're talking about debris up till now, and here it is, the first press release from Walter Howe. And, uh, but just, we both agree that he wasn't part of the initial uh, recovery and stuff like that, and that was done within uh, the first hour or two of... Uh, Marcel starting to bring the material back. He did. Uh, now, this comes from my personally talking with the man, as have you. And he did state, you know, things were in a big flux and because there was uh, there was a big training thing going on at the base at that time. I don't know if you remember that uh, because I've talked to a number of people that were on the base. And it, it, most people don't realize not only was it a bomber wing, it was also a big training facility to train people how to deal with. Uh, the new types of planes. It was also where they were just starting the new jet engines. The new jet engines were being, uh, the training for those, for mechanics, was being held there because jet engines back then were top secret, you know, Probably as well. Paperclip was it, or they had some German sign. Uh, right, right. And this goes with one of my people that I personally interviewed that handled material there that I'll discuss later. 
Well, we'll get into Walter Hout uh, a little bit at the start of the second hour. Uh, we do have to break for the CBS News, but when we come back, we will continue the Roswell Smackdown. Matt Moniz is on his way to Roswell uh, starting next week. He'll report to us live from there next Saturday night, uh, as well as you know all the information he'll bring us tonight. He'll talk to us about some of the latest and, and most up-to-date information next week, as well as some special guests. But uh, we do have to break for the CBS News when we come back. The rest of the Roswell Smackdown. Keep voting on SpookySouthCoast.com, and we will be back in just a few minutes. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. Great googly moogly. Okay, welcome back into Spooky South Coast. Hour number two of the giant, huge, knock them down, drag them out, Roswell Smackdown. This is the, you know, let me throw out something here too. Uh, first, I'd like to thank our guest John Horrigan for, for helping come up with this format tonight of, of coming up with a way to present all this information to people. Uh, and everybody should go to the MassMonsterMash.com website and, and check out what they have lined up there because all the effort and energy that John puts into everything, the Mass Monster Mash is one of the biggest examples of that. And, and you can see the great speakers that they have coming this year uh, uh, will be there. We're going to try to broadcast live from there, and we'll uh, we'll see what goes on. And we'll, we'll bring to you all the different speakers that are there uh, in the weeks leading up to it, and also uh, the Mass Mystery Tour, which is something new coming up. Uh, we'll have more information on that in the future. But definitely check those things out. Uh, and we also want to thank Chris Balzano of the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website because he wrote the great, um, we'll call it a press release, uh, talking about the, the battle between these two titans tonight. Uh, he came up with it and we ran with it, so we thank Chris for that as well. And, of course, if you want to keep judging the Roswell Smackdown as it goes on, just check the blog on SpookySouthCoast.com. You'll see all the little poll windows to vote as we go along, and uh, we'll get the tallies later on tonight. So uh, we left off on round number six. We're going to hear from Walter Hout, who is the press information officer for the Roswell Army Base. Now, we just read that press release uh, that was issued, but we're going to hear uh, Walter Hout uh, in his own words. Uh, so why don't you roll that beautiful bean footage? Got the telephone call from Colonel Blanchard, and in essence, he told me that uh, we had, he had in his possession a flying saucer or parts thereof gave me a little bit of idea where it came from and <clears throat> ranch north west of Roswell then stated that uh, Major Marcel Jesse Marcel who's our base intelligence officer was going to fly it to Fort Worth to turn it over to General Roger Ramey who was commander commanding general of the 8th Air Force at that time in Fort Worth. And what did Colonel Blanchard want you to do? He told me to prepare a release uh, 
with basically the information that he gave me over the phone when it was done to take it into community and deliver it, hand deliver it to the four uh, news media we had in Roswell at that time, which is what I did. I was instructed by Colonel Blanchard to put out a press release, which in effect stated that we had in our possession a flying saucer. In essence, it said that we have in our possession a flying disc. It was uh, picked up on a ranch, and I can't remember if I said northwest of Roswell, brought into town by Mac Brazel, a ranch foreman, uh, and the material was flown to higher headquarters, 8th Air Force, General Rainey. Okay, so that is Walter Howe, in his own words, uh, the press information officer for Roswell Army Base, uh, a gentleman who both Matt and John have had the pleasure of speaking to, and so we'll get their thoughts, just, just what they think of, of what he said. You know, basically it was under orders to say that there was a saucer. So we'll go with that, and uh, I think it's Matt's round to begin. So you're on the clock, my friend, starting now. Okay, uh, first off, now how who I had a chance to talk to back in 1994. I talked to him for about two hours. Uh, he definitely was uh, instructed to put out the release. Uh, he wasn't given all of the details, but he was definitely involved with a lot of the material after the fact, after it was on base, which is now in his uh, video deposition that he gave that has just been released. And it lists a whole bunch of things about what he saw. And it confirms a majority of the things that has been said by all of the military people that were in there. And now, what benefit does a dead man have to put out something like this? Okay? He, he, he's not going to make any money on it. He's dead. So uh, Ten seconds. That, that, to me, indicates some bit of credibility. And one of the things that most people want to do, clear their conscience before they meet the maker. Oh, perfect timing. Right on the mark. All right, John, your response beginning now. Clearly, Walter Hout is confused um, when he puts out this press release. He never saw the debris. Um, but I'm going to read an affidavit that he signed in 1993. In July 1947, I was stationed at the Roswell Army Air Base, serving as the base public information officer. At approximately 9.30 a.m. on July 8th, I received a call from Colonel William Blanchard, the base commander, who said he had in his possession a flying saucer or parts thereof. He said it came from a ranch northwest of Roswell and that the base intelligence officer, Major Jesse Marcel, was going to fly the material to Fort Worth. Colonel Blanchard told me to write a news release about the operation delivered to both the newspapers and the two radio stations in Roswell. He felt that he wanted the local media to have the first opportunity to have the story. I went first to KGFL, then to KSWS, then to the Daily Record, and finally to the Morning Dispatch. The next day, I read in the newspaper that General Roger Ramey in Fort Worth has said the object was a weather balloon. I believe Colonel Blanchard saw the material because he sounded positive about what the material was. There's no chance that he would have mistaken it for a weather balloon. Neither is there a chance that Major Marcel would have been mistaken. In 1980, Jason Marcel told me that the material... All right, so uh, let's get into it for the one-minute battle back and forth. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll try and keep it a little bit so you know we're not talking so much over each other because it's AM radio, man, mono speakers. All right, ready? 
Dead men don't tell tales, right? I, I believe Walter Hout was an honest man, but then he gets caught up in the UFO hysteria when he says he believes Colonel Blanchard saw the material and he sounded positive about what he had seen. Then in 1980, he speaks with Jesse Marcel and says the material photographed in Ramey's office was not the material that he recovered. We all know about the Bon Johnson uh, photographic alleged right. swap of debris where Jesse's looking up, holding this. Well, that's, uh, there was also later verified by Ramey who did say, you know, later on in years that, yeah, he did swap the material out. Ramey never said that. Uh, it's on record. No. I don't have the material. And again, to... he has that letter in his hand, too, where people are saying that that uh, supposedly com- it's probably an order for pizza or for the lunch for that day. Uh, some yeah. of it looks legit. I can't, I can't say I agree with all of it. I'll give you that one, but it's not definitely not a pizza order. Remember, Walter never saw it. Any debris. Oh, on the contrary. I talked to him, like I said, for two hours. He definitely did see it, and he said that to me directly. That's news to me. Well, a lot of this apparently is, John. He never admitted that. <laughs> oh! Oh! <laughs> that natural sense of timing. He just gets that last... <laughs> Horgan is down! Horgan is down! He's bleeding from the eye. Because that was a shot directly into it. All right, well, uh, now for our next round, we are going to play for you the historic ABC News broadcast. This is round seven. We will play for you the ABC broadcast when the crash happened. So uh, enjoy what is uh, essentially a piece of history. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Russia has demanded UN action to get all foreign military personnel out of Greece. Southern soft coal operators have not yet reached agreement with John L. Lewis, but the rest of the soft coal industry has resumed production. The House of Representatives has passed the tax deduction bill by more than the two-thirds which would be required to override a veto. Headline edition will bring you special reports and interviews in a moment. The American Broadcasting Company and affiliated stations present Headline Edition with Taylor Grant. From all over the world, wherever the day's headlines are made, Headline Edition brings you accurate, timely reports on the news behind those headlines, plus informative in-person interviews with the men and women who made the headlines today. Today's edition presents a roundup of the latest developments in the finding of a flying disc, an eyewitness report of today's significant action in the U.N. Security Council. Ohio Congressman Thomas A. Jenkins, commenting on today's House action on tax legislation. A special report on the status of soft coal negotiations. And the details of today's all-star baseball game reported from Chicago. Stay in step with history in the making. Stay tuned to Headline Edition. And now, here's Taylor Grant. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange disks had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials endeavoring to obtain all possible late information. Joe Wilson reports to us now from Chicago. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucers. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the disks which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disc landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. Brizel was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, 
Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Rice Field, Ohio. A few moments ago, I talked to officials at Rice Field, and they declared that they expect the so-called flying chopper to be delivered there, but that it hasn't arrived as yet. In the meantime, General Ramey describes the object as being of flimsy construction, almost like a box type. He says that it was so battered that he was unable to determine whether it had a disc form, and he does not indicate its size. Ramey says that so far as can be determined, no one saw the object in the air, and he describes it as being made of some sort of tinfoil. Other Army officials say that further information indicates that the object had a diameter of about 20 to 25 feet, and that nothing in the apparent construction indicated any capacity for speed, and that there was no evidence of a power plant. The disc also appeared too flimsy to carry a man. Now, back to Taylor Grant in New York. There was important activity within the U.N. Security Council today. Okay, so there you have it, some historic audio, uh, some historic audio evidence. And I was just remarking, oh, sorry, I was just remarking to Matt Moniz uh, during that audio that, uh, you know, we're putting a lot of, you know, valuable audio testimony out there in, in terms of this case. So, you know, we're having fun with it in the format, but definitely, you know, download the podcast, uh, li- listen to the audio very in-depth, listen to what these people have to say, and then you can really make your own decisions. I mean, right now we're having fun in the format, uh, flying by the seat of our pants a little bit here, but when you get a chance to really listen to what's going on, I mean, this is history. So, uh, And with that in mind, uh, John Horgan, your uh, thoughts on the ABC broadcast beginning now. Yes, this is a historic ABC broadcast. Imagine driving across the desert or across America, and this comes over your radio. Obviously, a, snow, a slow news day, as it, it made the top of the newscast. It was the headline story and beat the All-Star game. But there's confusion here, and this is after the disc or whatever the debris um, of, of the uh, weather balloon has been flown from Carswell Air, Army Airfield in Fort Worth. It's been moved now to Wright Field, not Wright-Patterson. It's still Wright Field uh, in Dayton, Ohio. And they say Blanchard is in lockdown because Blanchard says he's not going to give any details because Ramey's told him to shut up. So uh, Ramey says it's flimsy, so battered, no one saw it, it was made of tinfoil, 20 to 25 feet in diameter, no capacity for speed, no power plant, couldn't carry a man. He's definitely describing a balloon at this point. Of course, this begs the question, was a balloon? But Ramey right now has uh, retracted the story, and he's going with the balloon here, and it's on its way to right field. Okay, and now Matt Moniz, your response? It's the news. That's all i got to say. Really, taking a brave, a brave uh, approach in this round. All right, guys. Now, uh, in the final minute of this round, you can duke it out back and forth. Starting now. Uh, just a uh, 1947 August Gallup poll. After this, what do you think these saucers are? And this total is 102 percent. No answer. Don't know. 33 percent. That's a third. Imagination, optical illusions, mirages. 29 percent. Hoax. U.S. secret weapon. Part of the atomic bomb. 15 percent. Weather forecasting devices. 3 percent. Russian secret weapon. 1 percent. Searchlights on airplanes. 2 percent. Other explanations. 9 percent. So it seems like in August, only 3 percent of the people believe it's some type of balloon. Which shows that they were a lot smarter back then <laughs> than the people in New Mexico. <laughs> All right, well, well, let's call that a round. I guess there's not much more, more to say on that. Okay, well, now we'll move on to round number eight, uh, and this is the KGFL Madness at the Radio Station round, where we're going to play for you some uh, audio of Meanwhile at KGFL. And uh, when we come back, we will talk about that.
And he told me he had something hot for the network. I got into it enough to know that there was a pretty big, pretty big story. When if you wanted an interruption on the teletype, if you wanted the operator to stop, or you needed, you know, to feed something in, there was a signal bell that you turned on. And this bell came on, and the typing came across. This is the FBI. You will immediately cease transmitting. I don't know whether I should say this or not, but it was true. We hid out the rancher for one night. Where were they? Yeah. Where? Yes, and we, we did we did some transcriptions with him on some mm -hmm. good old wire recorders, if you will. Where did you hide him out? We had him out at Mr. Whitmore's house here in town. He lived out outside of the city limits on the east side. So you were present at the actual interview? I was not. You were not? I was trying to run the station at mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. The question that we, that we ran into is the very next morning, some friendly person, probably from Clinton Anderson's office, called us from Washington and said, you, uh, we, we understand that you have some information and we want to assure you that if you release it on this matter, because it's not supposed to be released, it's very possible that your license could be in jeopardy. And so we suggest that you not do it. And he said, when I mean in jeopardy, like maybe three days. Okay, and now we will go on. Now, John, who are we hearing from there, from KGFL? Uh, first one was Lydia Sleppy, who worked there and was working a teletype. And then that was Judd Roberts, uh, I think the station manager, owner. Okay, well, now we can debate uh, what they had to say back and forth. Matt Moniz, you can start this round. Now, it's interesting to note that they did verify that the FBI did break in to, to stop this transmission now you don't stop a transmission of data or news unless you're ordered to you're only ordered to unless there's a significant reason in which to stop information being uh brought out to the public and i don't think a weather balloon or even a, a, any other type of balloon would be significant enough reason to, in which to stop this um transmission and it can't be the mogul balloon because Mogul, being a compartmentalized top-secret program, nobody would have known about this program and would have been able to identify it as a mogul balloon in that time period. So a balloon is a balloon is a balloon. And you're not going to stop you know, information like that being released if you don't have to be. All right, John, and your response... Well, you, you touched on Project Mogul, top secret project. Okay, listening to uh, to Soviet nuclear explosions, uh, they're they're going to protect it, and also they're probably getting, if I can say, pissed off. They're they're jamming the lines in the Pentagon. They're jamming the lines in the White House, probably the Capitol building. Uh, everybody is getting on the phone, and they're causing hysteria. Slow news day. So of course the FBI is saying, look, we got the word from the top. Knock it off. No more talk about this flying saucer crap. Okay, it's a weather balloon. General Ramey said so. Let's stop it, or we're going to throw, or you're going to take you off the air, going to knock you off the air, because it's causing a lot of panic. Um, uh, needless phone calls are being made, tying up the lines. It's a matter of national security. Again, this is the advent of the Cold War. The Soviets have a leg up on us in terms of uh, jet jet power, uh, atomic uh, power, etc. So now it's a, a matter of national defense. So now in the, in this. One minute round here. We'll be able to battle being told to shut up by the government for reasons of national security on the 
you know, the top secret protecting the secrets end or being told to shut up for reasons of national security on the safety of the civilians end. So you guys can go back and forth about that starting now. Now, when it comes down to telling a civilian agency to shut down, the government has, number one, no right to do so unless it's an act of war that's being conducted. We weren't at war. We had just finished one. Number two, the Russians didn't explode the atomic bomb until 1948. So as far as your argument about them being ahead of us technologically in terms of nuclear power, no. We were still listening for the bomb. That's why the Mughals were going up. And we had better jets than they uh, did up true, until 1949. True. Uh, uh, no, good point. I, I, I'll... I'll backpedal on that but what i am saying is that they were working on uh they were working on on atomic power they we knew that they were working we were waiting for them to explode a device we had devices aloft listening for that but again this was a top secret project if people started praying away if they peeled back the layers of the onion they would have found out that we had these balloons aloft it would have gotten back to the reds and there was a red scare going on it was the advent of the cold war it was a matter of national security and again this is the beginning of the duck cover and roll because people were afraid of the soviet juggernaut not. They had already carved up Berlin. Berlin ever- All right, so definitely, <laughs> definitely some lively debate in that round as well. Uh, so now we'll keep moving on. Now you mentioned before, John, uh, Brazil and lockdown, and that is the title of round number nine. Uh, so just give everybody a little bit of a heads up. Here. What we'll hear here. We go back to Frank Joyce, the reporter from KGFL, who says that uh, Brazil changes his story. And then we hear Marion Strickland, quotation fingers, a neighbor who sees Mac walking across the street in the custody of neighbors. Like in custody of the Army. I was going to say, what? (laughs) Fire it off, Matt. I think the next significant thing, as far as I'm concerned, it was dark. I got a phone call again. It's Brazil. And he is saying in a very clear voice, you know, very, very loud, well, look, uh, this story is, um, you know, we haven't quite got this story right, and I don't know whether it was that night or the next night. He wanted to come over and talk to me. So I said, okay, come over to the station. And that's where I said, look, you know, it's a very interesting story or something in effect, and, and uh, however, it's nothing at all like or it's completely different from... Uh, the story you told me on the phone the other day, especially about something, I, uh, you know, the, the little where I said to him, the little green men, and that's where he said, yeah, it, only they weren't green. Next up, you'll be hearing Marion Strickland, who's the neighbor who sees Mac. Mac was very secretive, and I know that he made it plain that uh, he was not supposed to tell this and not supposed to tell that and I think most of what he was not supposed to tell was that there was any excitement about this material mm-hmm. now that's my recollection but Mac was pretty unhappy oh you bet he was a man who uh, had integrity um, he was he definitely felt insulted and misused and disrespected. All right, John, take it away. Go. 
Again, I think that you're seeing a lockdown, a cap of the hysteria. Um, Frank Joyce um, mentioning that Mac calls him and says, you know, I'm wrong. And obviously, Mac's arm is getting twisted. I'm not going to deny that. But the military are probably suggesting, look, this flying saucer hysteria, this crazy, it's getting out of hand. We're getting phone calls everywhere. They're jamming the lines. Again, there's a national security issue here. And the, the end, end game is that they're trying to protect their secret balloon project. And then you have Marion, to her best recollections, and again, she's like, like one of the Wilcox daughters or Loretta Proctor, oh, he was a he was a good man. This is where the story emanates of him walking on the sidewalk on, in the custody of military. You can just hear her making an aside, and that was blown out of proportion. Um, years on, they say that Mac had a brand new pickup truck and a brand new freezer, and he came into some money um, that he was paid off by the military. But obviously, he was under duress. And the comment that Frank Joyce makes um, is that uh, uh, Mac says, "You know how I talked about." Them green aliens, well, they ain't green. And uh, it, again, this is a, uh, they're they're trying to shut Mac up and cap this hysteria in Roswell and uh, get on with regular business because they're digging into the uh, news could get back about the 509th wing, the atomic we'll wing, and they didn't time. want the Reds to know that. Sorry, I got a little distracted planning ahead. Gave him a couple of extra seconds, Matt. You wanna you want to uh, fight for your right to to go the same distance, or? I'll only need 45. <laughs> oh. All right, well, you got it. Go. Number one, Max was detained, acknowledged, verified at least three days. Number two, he did make that statement that he that they weren't green. That was verified by the radio station owner as well as the uh, – not the owner, I mean the the radio station guy as well as the secretary that was there. The, she visibly witnessed that as well. He did get a new truck, which is uh, can be looked up in the records of the registration uh, that that he did receive that after that. Um, the other item being that he was a simple man. Why would he make up the story like that if he if he didn't, you know, actually go through being detained? And he was ordered. There's no ifs, no ands, no buts. Forty-seven. You were close. Huh? All right, gentlemen. Back and forth it, starting now. Can I just say the reason why he got his new truck is he has sold his herd of sheep. And uh, he came into some cash, and he was able to uh, buy a brand-new pickup because his old pickup, if I'm not mistaken. And who bought the sheep? The government. Who bought the sheep? I don't know who bought the sheep. So cut the sheep. Um, I'm trying to, to make a point here. Uh, is basically Brazel again? He's, he was. You said he was. A, he was a simple man. A simple man is what my point is. Is that he totally misunderstood what he had collected. He was looking for three grand. Okay. He probably said, "Where's my three grand?" And if maybe the government did buy his sheep to shut him up. But uh, just because they wanted to keep the public away and the press away from the Roswell 509th Bomb Group and the fact that this was a top-secret military balloon it launch. Was an, I mean, when you have the emblem of an atomic bomb exploding as your patch on the outside of the base, it's not hard for people to figure Ten out seconds. that you're an atomic wing. Right, but there were probably uh, <laughs> reporters clamoring at the was, as well. And you I, well you don't it want was no secret right that it was an atomic wing. Do you? The Russians knew. Oh, impressive. All right, well, let's take our final break of the night, and when we come back, we will continue on with the Roswell Smackdown here on Spooky South Coast. Ladies and gentlemen, Spooky South Coast is back. On the tip. I don't want to do something. Like what? Fight. I don't fight anymore. I want you to return to the ring. Now, it's the fight of the century. 
Welcome back to the Big Roswell Smackdown. And we are going to continue on. We're, we're, we're hoping to have an actual knockout, but if we have a TKO, we have a TKO. All right, so we have uh, gone through nine rounds so far. You can keep voting on the blog at SpookySouthCoast.com. And now we are, are on to round number 10, which is where some of the military started to get involved with what went on. And, and John, tell us about uh, some of the comments that were made by members of the military. These are members of the military who claim that they were part of the Roswell story. You'll hear Sergeant Lewis Rickett. Then the next segment is Lieutenant Robert Shirky, followed by Robert Porter, and then you hear two 30-second sound bites from Colonel Thomas DuBose. Right out there, they had some stop points. They had some of the, the, the uh, military police there. And they had a number of them scattered all around. And we, uh, it looked like to me that there's something in the city that landed and there was a little pipe of things lying all around. Asked Cabot, I said, what's going on? He said, well, that's what we're, this is what the guy said. Something landed here, this, but he saw it when he came out here. So uh, they had air police scattered all the way around the perimeter, and the whole thing was down below the, the level of the rise. It was just like a kind of depression. To the, it was a natural depression. It wasn't a, that thing didn't cause, it did cause a little bit. But the material that we saw, just looked like it, it had, whatever it caused it, it was just like whatever there, it was just uh, vaporized. Some of them were curved, some of them were flat. Uh, they, uh, I know that I walked around to the other side over the distance and up to where these airplanes, where the at that time, it was the military police and the provost marshal's office, and they were had kind of a semi guard out there, allowing nobody in or out. And they gathered up that stuff as far as I can remember. And I know that it was just as it wasn't pliable; it was just as hard as it could be, and just as light as that. And uh, it was uh, enough. Yeah, that they put some in a, uh, I don't know what kind of, some kind of weapons carrier, I think they called it, or a truck that the military had, and they put it in there, and the major took it. A plane came in, and this time, Kevin was running the whole thing, and uh, they left. I heard various other sources that I'm not sure about, but I do know that later on, I asked Joe Worth, who was head of the CIC, and uh, whatever happened to all that metal? He said, that, <laughs> we wouldn't ask me that. He said, we changed over to a lab, and they don't know either. The call came in one day to arrange to have B-29 ready to go as soon as possible. And of course, someone asked, uh, where to? I said, just get a crew on board and uh, have the airplane stand by, and we're going to go to Fort Worth. And it was, that was Colonel Blanchard's directive. At any rate, I was in that operations office, and Colonel Blanchard drove up and came in and asked, is the aircraft ready? And 
I and one of the fellow there, who is now dead, uh, said, yes, it's sitting right out front, ready to go. And with this, he turned, stepped out back into the hallway, and waved to some people outdoors and still sitting in the automobiles. They came in the front door, straight down the hallway, and right out onto the ramp to climb into the airplane. And these were the people that were carrying parts of the crashed uh, flying saucer at that time, a UFO today, that uh, I got to see. Colonel Blanchard, in order to get out of their way, had backed into the doorway of the ops office, and I stepped up to him and I said, Colonel, turn sideways. I want to see too. <laughs> Maybe if I hadn't said that to him, made it obvious that I was there, uh, I would not have been shipped out two weeks later. <laughs> so he just turned and looked at me, and he did turn sideways so that I could half step into the doorway and watch the fellows go through and what I, thus I saw them carrying certain pieces of these metals brushed stainless steel maybe if you think of the uh, common aluminum foil roll today when you're pulling out uh, one side's real reflective but that's not what it was it was the like the opposite side which is rather dull I've heard it mentioned now for so many times about the uh, I-beam with the markings on it and so forth. And I actually saw that piece of I-beam being carried through and, and saw the markings. We flew the, these pieces. They told us it was a parts of the flying saucer. And we flew from Roswell to Fort Worth. And it, we started out, they told us we'd be going to Rat Patterson in Ohio. And we got to Fort Worth, and they transferred them to B-25 and took them on to Rack Patterson. And uh, what did you do then? Then we returned to Roswell. Okay. Who, who do you recall was on board that B-29 when you left Roswell? Uh, Colonel Jennings was on board, and, and Colonel Barraclaw, Major uh, Wonderlick, and... Uh, uh, Major Marcel was uh, ones up front. Okay. And and who was it who told you that these these were pieces of a flying saucer? I don't remember just uh, who it was, but uh, it must have been Captain Henderson. What was it that was actually loaded on board that you saw? Well, we had uh, it's just packages and uh, wrapping paper, uh -huh. and one of them was triangle shaped, about two and a half feet uh, across the bottom. And the rest were in smaller packages, uh, about the shoebox size. What was your feeling when you... Well, just like uh, picked up an empty package. Is that right? Uh, Very light. Right. The cover story, the balloon part of it, is the story that's to be given to the press, and that is if and, and anything else forget it. And McMullen, if you ever knew him, he, if you told him that he wanted to run something, he goddamn sure ran. He knew every facet of the operation. He's a busybody. He wanted to, he wanted to know what the hell was going on, who was sitting on the sidewalk, and all that sort of thing. McMullen told me, you are not to discuss this, and this is a point of which this is more than top secret, if he said. It's beyond that. 
it's within my priority as deputy to to George Kenney, and he in turn responsible to the president, this is the highest priority you can exist, and you will say nothing, and that will be another And Jesus, that's from the commander-in-chief, and you just and you forgot about it. And we will just get into uh, some debate here about, you know, the members of the military commenting on what happened. And uh, Matt Moniz, you can start beginning now. All right. Uh, all of these people that you did mention had firsthand operations with the material. They physically saw it, handled it, and used their influence to move it along wherever they were going to go with it. Uh, I personally was in, uh, know a man by the name of Dennis Mott, who was a resident here in New Bedford, who was at Roswell when this event occurred. They were teaching uh, people how to... 30 seconds. Uh, ...repair jet engines back then, because jet engines were new. Mr. Dennis was one of these people who was the mechanic, and he was responsible with a couple, handful of other people in his barracks there that had some of this material that they brought back from the field. Now, this is a guy who's an aircraft engineer, a mechanic, knows ma materials very well, said this was nothing he's ever seen before or seen since like it. All right, John, your response starting now. There are a lot of um, men that put themselves into this story. They were had military credentials or have military credentials or don't have military credentials. We're going to hear from a guy named Frank Hoffman later. But what bugs me is that these witnesses, not only do they emerge in the 1990s, they emerge after the 50th anniversary of the Roswell event, after post-1997. Frankly, I don't take uh, and corroborate any evidence after 1997. The witnesses that came forward for the first Randall Schmidt books or the Berliner uh, uh, Bill Moore book, starting in the late 1980s, I will listen to their testimony. But anybody that comes forward, and I'm not criticizing your witness, um, but these other guys that are sworn to secrecy, they're just being good military lads. All right. Well, now let us move on to the back-and-forth round, starting now. Dennis, I interviewed in 1992. He also said something that, that he's never had read any books about any of this topic. He only found out about my research and other researches through a personal friend. And he verified that they were all brought into the movie theater or the theater and debriefed and were all told just like everybody else was that was involved that had ever seen any of this stuff, not to talk about it. And it was forced to sign a uh, secrecy agreement, as were a number of people on the base, both civilian and military. Which fits nice me in my shut up and stop talking about this theory because the military, there were top secret military operations going on and doesn't necessarily have to deal with flying saucers. So uh, um, that, that fits in nicely. It with still goes theory. on today, yeah. Great. Okay. Well, we are flying along here now. Uh, now we are going to get to round 11, Frank Kaufman's Bluff. And uh, we will play uh, some audio from Mr. Kaufman right now. Paddle to control. We 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 could we didn't make we couldn't make them out. They were they were uh, writings. We we didn't know what it. Uh, uh, we couldn't decipher it or anything of that nature. And the underbelly of the craft had a series of cells, you know, fork type cells, a glass looking cell, octagon shape. Okay. 
Okay, so now, John, you get the first word on Frank Kaufman. Let's go. This is the clown prince, the Pinocchio of Roswell. This guy is full of it. Um, he's lying. He's a charlatan, a shill, uh, a Roswell goober, okay? And he says he saw the control panel. He lied about his military background. Yes, he was a military person or, or remotely related to the military down there, um, but this this is a, your prototypical Roswell liar, as is Jim Ragsdale. Jim Ragsdale said that he was out in the desert the night that this craft allegedly crashed, uh, boinking his girlfriend, no lie, truly, true love. Um, and then they saw this thing come down. They went over there. The military cordoned, cordoned off the area, and there's Jim on the ridge hiding, ducking down, and watching the entire recovery operation. It's a bunch of crap. Ooh, it's time to spare. You said truly, true love? That's that's Yeah, it. he's yeah. – Ah, that, that's a classic. All right, Matt Moniz, your response on the subject of Frank Kaufman starting now. I have no argument with exactly everything John just said. <laughs> All right, so uh, I think we don't need to have that one minute uh, back and forth if we have a total agreement. So uh, I think uh, for, for those of you uh, in scoring at home, you might want to call this round a draw for uh, round number 11. And uh, now we will move on to round number 12, which is where some of the big brass got involved. John, why don't you tell us about that? Great interview. You're going to hear with General Arthur Exxon. Listen to him. We evade the questions. And then you hear from Beverly Bean, who is the daughter of Melvin Brown. Brownie, the nickname. He allegedly saw the cadavers or peeked inside a coffin and saw a dead alien. As a result of that, uh, uh, I know there was, they saw the one sighting, and then there was further a bit of the information came down, and then... Uh, Yeah. 
It's almost as if when he'd actually told the story, he wished he hadn't. All available men were grabbed. That's that, his actual words I'm saying here now that I can remember. All available men were grabbed. They all had to go out to the desert where a, a crash source would come down. And um, they all had to stand, uh, stand guard duty around this site. They were told to look, but not look, not to take anything in. He lifted up, um, him and this other guy both lifted up the cover and saw, I say two bodies, but my sister remembers him as saying three. We, we disagree on that. Um, they saw these bodies and uh, they were about four foot tall, no more than that, maybe even less. Uh, much larger heads than we have. Slanted eyes, yellowish skin. Matt, you get to start with the subject of General Arthur X on something we were talking about uh, earlier today, um, beginning now. And I was trying to get the uh, video that I had at one time of uh, Exxon admitting that all of this stuff about Roswell did happen as, as it has been said, alien craft or craft of unknown origin with bodies in it. Now, this is a videotape of him lying on his deathbed confessing this. Uh, now... He was very paranoid in his later years, and uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to attain the uh, thirty seconds, the the tape as of yet. But I'll I will forward it to John once I get a hold of it again. But um, there are a number of uh, big brass that also came forward. Uh, Ramey, like I said, made mention that's found in some other books. Uh, there's also uh, Laramie or uh, ten seconds. There's several other large brass that were involved that later came out and said, yeah, this stuff did happen. Oh, right on the dot. Beautiful. And John Horgan, your response. Um, I never, ever, and I've researched this a long time, have heard any testimony uh, being been evoked from General Roger Ramey, so I have to see that. I've never seen anything. And as far as I, I, I know, he's never said a word on that. Uh, General Exxon. Here's a guy who wants to protect his pension. He's a good boy, a good soldier. This general here probably signed an affidavit or uh, sworn to secrecy, and he had to protect his pension, and he knew up until his dying day, if he said that, that still the word could get back to some uh, poor sucker in the Pentagon, yank the dude's pension if he starts talking about this, and he probably had a collar on him. So he's just protecting uh, his pension in his old age. Beverly Bean, the daughter of Melvin Brown. This is a hearsay and innuendo. All right. Good time to spare. Now, one minute to volley back and forth, starting now. If you want more stuff on Ramey, I suggest you start hitting the books again. Oh, no. no you, honestly, you just, you're misspeaking because I have hit the books and I have memorized that there is no book and, and again no newspaper or periodical that you can show me that has general roger ramey who was at the fort worth carswell army airfield who says that this is a ufo not, no, it's I, not a public I, one it's a bollocks, private, no, bollocks, private no. printing no no he never said anything like that never no sorry i'm pretty sure he did I, pretty sure I, i'm <laughs> take the knee go to your corner i'm taking out my mouthpiece my mouthpiece and spitting so it's, it's getting late <laughs> so we'll call that around there in the interest of uh, keeping time. Now we will move on to round number 13, the mortician. What does a mortician have to do with Roswell? Matt, do you know? The story being that the base called looking for four uh, coffins kid size. Actually, the first time they called asking if coffins were hermetically sealed and if they had four uh, coffins kid size. So uh, let's hear the testimony of Glenn Dennis, the mortician. 
Then the next call I got, probably in 30, 45 minutes later, he was asking me then about our preparations and what we did uh, preparing the bodies that had been laying out in the elements or that, you know, some badly decomposed bodies or how we treated the burnt bodies, otherwise very traumatic uh, cases and what our procedure was on that. Then the next question was, well, what would you do where you wouldn't change any of the chemical contents, you wouldn't destroy any of the blood, you wouldn't destroy anything that might be very important uh, later on, you know, down the road. What would your process and what you do and the chemicals that you use, would that change the blood contents and everything? I knew at the time that there was something that probably happened. I thought maybe it was something that they weren't ready to release or that might be some VIP or something they didn't want. But I mean, I had no idea what it was. But uh, uh, I told him at the time, I said, you know, I can come out and I can help you if you have that. And he said, no, this is for future, in case this should happen in the future, he said, this is something we need to know so we'll know how to proceed. What I noticed that was so unusual about this, that there was some inscriptions or a border around this part of it. It was probably three inches, maybe around three inches, but it was it was kind of going along the, the contour of the, of the wreckage. And it, at the time, I, after I got back, I got to thinking about this and what the border looked like, and it kind of reminded me, might be some, it's kind of reminded me of an Egyptian inscriptions of figures and whatever. One of the nurses, lieutenant nurses that I was acquainted with very well, she uh, was very excited and she said, how did you get in here? What are you doing here? And get out immediately or you're going to get in a lot of trouble. She said, get out of here as fast as you can. But I said, it looks like you've had a looks like you've had a crash. And I said, I see some debris, and then the ambulance is there, and that's probably where I really got in trouble right there. And he said, "Well, just a moment." And then he went to the door and he motioned for somebody. And about that time, there was two MPs that came out. They both, and he said, "Get this man out here. Get him out here as fast as you can get him out here." And then we were starting down the hall. And then uh, there was a man that, that we heard a voice said, I'm not through with that SOB yet, said, bring him back. The captain told me, the red captain told me, he said, there was no crash here, you did not see anything. And he said, you don't go into town, you don't tell anybody anything that you saw anything or anything else. He said, if you do, you'll get in real serious trouble. Well, I was a little agitated because I didn't like the name he called me to start with. And I informed him, I said, look, I'm a civilian, you can't do a damn thing to me, and you, as far as I'm concerned, you can go to hell. And that was the exact words that I told him, and I remember it very clearly. And then the black sergeant, he said, oh, don't kid yourself, young man. He said, somebody be picking your bones out of the sand. She was going into this examination room that was across the hall. She was going in to get some supplies, and when she walked in the door, there was two doctors there. And... Uh, she noticed a horrible smell immediately. But she saw these two doctors and they said, we need you. You, you. She started out the door and said, you stay here, we've got to have you. And what it was, they were examining, uh, she told me, three 
bodies, foreign bodies. She said two of them were very mutilated. She almost, I knew she was almost in a state of shock because she was said it was so gruesome and so horrible, you know, and she would just, you know, almost grab her head and, and, and it looked like she was just going into total shock. She had drawn me just a little the night before. She had a, a description of, of, of an arm that was, uh, that she had drawn and then the anatomy of the arm, which was different from ours, there was only four fingers on, on the, the hand didn't have a thumb to it, only four very uh, slim, fragile little fingers. But when they turned one of the hands over, they noticed at the end of the fingers, there was little, like little pads on each one of the four fingers there. And it looked to them like they were like little suction cups. They were little hollowed out areas that looked kind of like a suction, uh, suction cup. The heads on uh, these individuals were much larger, somewhat larger than, than the human head would be. The eyes were very sunken. The nose was kind of, there wasn't a convex or anything. The nose was very concave with only two little orifices. The ears, there was no ear. The only might be two little orifices on the side, but very small little lobes that looked like they might function, might close maybe or whatever, but they was very small. Nothing resembled uh, an ear on, on a human anatomy at all. All right, well, Matt Moniz, uh, you get to go first, and uh, you you look like you don't really believe what uh, Mr. Dennis had to say. We will give you your time starting now. I don't. I'm done. All right, that's a time saver right there. John Horgan, your response. I agree with Matt, but I want to pigpile on Glenn Dennis here. Um, when I met him in Roswell, I said, I know you're not telling the truth, and I know, but I know that most of your living is being made off this, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut about it. And he kind of looked at me like, you... Thanks. And anyways, uh, he describes the debris in great detail. He goes and he looks in the back of a Jeep and he sees the debris and he sees the hieroglyphics. And then he uh, sees he details the dead aliens in exquisite detail, although he never saw them. This is relayed to him by this nurse. Allegedly, her name is Naomi Self. Further research by researchers say there's no such nurse. Glenn Dennis is the only one that puts aliens into the story. Um, It's an aberration. He's not telling the truth. He shouldn't be involved with Roswell. I did hear a report of one other woman that did meet a nurse that did supposedly uh, see the bodies, but her name wasn't Naomi Self or even Naomi or the other name of the one nurse that they did transfer after that event. But that has nothing to do with this. All internet lore. All right. Well, now let's move on to... This come from the internet. Let's move on to round number 14. Uh, that is the Pappy Henderson round. Uh, John, let us uh, in a little bit about Mr. Henderson. Pappy Henderson was a pilot, and allegedly he flew the debris. I'm not sure, Matt, if it was from um, Roswell to Carswell or Carswell to Wright Pad. Okay, and uh, you'll hear from his wife, uh, Sappho, and his daughter, Mary Catherine, um, that Pappy, once he saw Marcel's story come out in the National Enquirer, I think he felt it was okay for him to talk to it, about it to his wife and to his daughter. And, again, I think he was carrying the debris and was sworn to secrecy, and, again, there's a pension involved. Okay, so roll that for us, Matt. We were in the grocery store in San Diego where we had lived for many years, and uh, we were at the checkout stand, and here was a, a paper, the Globe, I believe it was. Uh, here was all of the, the story about it. In fact, I still have the papers here. And uh, he said he took a 
a look and he said, I've been wanting to tell you about this for years. I guess if they're putting in the papers now, it's no longer a top secret. And he said, he bought the papers and we went to the car and he said, read those. And I read the article and he said, it's a true story. He said, not only did I know about it, but I'm the pilot that took the crashed saucer to Dayton, Ohio. I was astonished, and uh, I, if it hadn't been uh, Pappy telling me, I probably wouldn't have believed it. But he was so, he was very confident, and he was always very truthful and straightforward. So I believed him, but if, you know, in those days, if you said you'd seen a spacecraft or a flying saucer, you were put in the uh, annals of a, a nut. <laughs> so I, uh, we didn't say much about this. But years before, when people would ask him what he thought about uh, flying saucers, his answer was, there's something to it. What I remember him telling me was that they were small people. Um, I don't remember three feet high, but certainly shorter than we were. Small people, uh, pale, uh, slightly slanted eyes, large, you know, sort of larger heads, and um, humanoid-looking, human-esque-looking, but not like us, different from us. And uh, he said they were dead, and that um, he had seen them, and that he had flown the wreckage of this flying saucer. All right, so John Horgan, it's your round, starting now. Um, Pappy Henderson, I like this story because he's the second witness to emerge behind Jesse Marcel. He sees it in the National Enquirer. That's where Roswell came back to life, I believe, 1978 or 79. It shows up in the Enquirer. Stan Friedman meets Actually, him. 68. It's referenced in... 68. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the things that's mentioned if you've ever seen Easy Rider, which came out in 69. Of course they they're talking about it. Really? Yeah. I got to go back and listen to that. Okay. That's, you, that's remember, you're talking to a biker. <laughs> sure. You're all over John's oh, round, so. Uh, yeah, I know he just uh, false start on the defense. <laughs> Um, but what I what I think I'll have to go back and listen to that. But basically, uh, Pappy comes forward. He's the second witness, and I think he's transporting the uh, top secret debris or weather balloon debris. Um, he's on the second leg of the transportation, and he's just, again, trying to protect his pension. He was sworn to secrecy, not threatened, but he probably signed off on some docs uh, stating that he wouldn't get his uh, military pension if he spoke about it. Okay, and Matt, Matt Moniz, your response? Yeah, he was sworn to secrecy. That simple, which means he actually was transporting something. Do I think it was a balloon? Uh, you don't get sworn to secrecy over balloons. You want to you debate that point, John? We'll go starting now. Again, it just fits in nicely with the hysteria. There was a clamp put down. You're causing too much trouble with this flying saucer talk. We're getting lines jammed. We have reporters knocking on the door, probably standing 100 yards away from atomic weapons that are armed in planes. You know, but that's their job. That's, that's what they're say. paid to do. Get over it. <laughs> All right. Okay, so why don't we move on to the final round now? The yes. pieces that you're going to hear, Major Edwin Easley, another witness and an officer, and then you're going to hear from Colonel Richard Weaver, who came forth in 1997 with the second um, revision of the Roswell story where he uh, forged the theory of crash test dummies moved in time. 
And I understand you were the provost marshal at one time. That's right. At the, at the 509th. Yeah. During, during July of 1947? Yeah. Pardon me? Yeah. Yes. Uh, you're aware of the incident that took place there in July of 47? The uh, alleged crash of a flying saucer? I've heard about it. Um, did you, do you have any first-hand knowledge of it? Do what? Do you have any first-hand knowledge of the incident? I can't talk about it. Then you do have some first-hand knowledge? I can't talk about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, we had, we had, we have received information from a couple of people that, uh, that you had been out at the crash site yourself as a provost marshal. So that was what we were trying to confirm. But you can't talk about it, right? That's right. Can you tell me if you were at the crash site? I can't talk about it. I've heard of that. Yes, sir, I understand. I've been that. Uh-huh. I'm not going to talk about it. These dummies, of which there are several different types, uh, had these kind of non-specific features. They were dressed in flight suits. Um, and there's a good table of comparison as well as lots of photographs in this book that, uh, that will show the comparison between statements of people who claim they saw something strange and what was actually being tested in the desert at that time. Okay, well, why don't we give uh, Matt the chance to start off with the closing arguments beginning now. I'd just rather play my video for him. Okay, well, you'll be able to check out that video at SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, we can't really show it to him now because we're running out of time. So, But uh, we will be posting it up on SpookySouthCoast.com uh, tomorrow, so you'll be able to see it. And John? I, I think that when you have the 1994 release um, where they the Air Force comes out and says it's Project Mogul, and then three years later they come out and say, no, it was crash test dummies. And, yes, if you do the research, there's no crash test dummies in 1947. I think they emerged in 1953. But I think this is one of the rare occasions that the Air Force or the government or the military is actually telling the truth. They came up with a second explanation, not to taint the Roswell 50th anniversary, but they're saying, hey, look, guys and gals, honest, trust me, it was a balloon crash. It might have been this crash test dummies where you saw these aliens because they're addressing the Glenn Dennis story he's the only buddy he and melvin brown that come out with the the uh, dead alien tale but i think that the air force truly meant and richard weaver and all the other people locate uh, uh, involved in this uh, uh event are trying to say hey it was a balloon crash get over it all right what we will do now is we're well, going to throw out the final question of the night and we will just have an open discussion argument whatever you want to call it two minutes here's the question Bottom line, Roswell, fact or fiction? How about it? Obviously, Roswell was a great Roswell balloon crash. My theory on flying saucer crashes, I'll reiterate. Either there are no flying saucer crashes or there's an entire uh, litany. You just can't have flying saucer crashes crashing a half mile away from these struggling authors that seem to come out with a book or a DVD every five years. I mean, the Aztecs, stop it. Uh, and all of these other ones in, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Um, either Or you go to Stephen uh, Greer's uh, website where he's got 200... Uh, crashes. Oh, Ryan Wood, please stop it. There's no flying saucer Shag crash. Harbor? Shag Harbor? Okay, no, 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 no. What, no. what you get a backpedal? Okay. My rib is hurt. Now, he got me with a right hand. What I what I will say is is that um, that this particular instance, it's time to quit Roswell. It's 60 years, okay? Let it be. 
All right, 60 years, you're going down for the anniversary. I'm inviting you to the Mass UFO Show, October 12th. Uh, 2007 to speak. I'm going to show you the 50th anniversary witness tape of the people that we heard here tonight on video and I'd like you, and I'm inviting you to report on your trip um, and to see the charlatans and shills and that silly embarrassing parade that they have down in Roswell um, to come and speak. Will you do that at the Mass UFO Sure. My, uh, one of the things I'm looking to do actually while I'm out there, as you know, I'm also a ghost hunter. I was a ghost hunter before I started doing research on UFOs and then wound up going back to researching ghosts because it's a lot safer because when you research UFOs, as I found out, they tend to shoot at you. Um, but one of the things I'm looking to do is there's been reports of the quote-unquote aliens, ghosts, haunting Hangar 84. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. And I want to see if I can do a little bit of ghost hunting right there on the base. Well, I think that's going to be a whole other episode, a whole other smackdown, the ghosts of the aliens of Roswell. <laughs> Gentlemen, yes, shake hands. Uh, we had a good, clean fight. We enjoyed every minute of it. Well, you know, Matt, uh, I'm trying to score this, and I'm coming up with, uh, you know, I think I'm going to have to give this one to Moniz, only because John Horrigan, to me, just seemed like he came in with an agenda. You know, he... <laughs> not to mention, you're protecting your homie. Well, well, bear That's in mind, cooking. he's got a stack of papers from stuff, and I'm working out of my memory. And, and, and Matt, Matt, <laughs> who would you... What's this? What do you mean? This is not a stack Matt, of papers? Matt, who would you stack score this for? papers that I just picked up that I haven't even read. Who would you score this for? I'd probably have to go with John Horgan. Yeah. But it was both... It was a... It was a verbal slobber knocker. All right. so. Well, you know, it's too close to call. We have a split decision, so we're going to put it in the hands of the spooky South Coast audience. Uh, we'll extend voting for the entire week. We'll announce the winner next week on Spooky South Coast when we have Matt Moniz uh, reporting live from Roswell. So why don't you get on the website, SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the blog. You'll see all the rounds. Vote round by round, and then question 15, uh, 16, who do you think won the overall event? We will be back next week at our regular time slot. We will check in with Matt and whoever else we can talk to down in Roswell, and we will take your calls as well, uh, and we'll be back. So uh, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for John Horrigan, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spectacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although... In many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to.